I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 24. We're going to look at and then a little we're just going to dip our toe into chapter uh, 26. We're sort of circumventing chapter 25 because it's kind of a self-contained unit. And I think you'll see how chapters 24 and 26 uh, connect with one another and correlate uh, thematically. Uh, Sam, I believe Sam Fielder is going to be preaching for us uh, next week while I'm going on the Clarkston trip and he'll tackle that chapter 25 for those who like to dot their I's and cross their T's. Don't worry, we're going to get to it. We'll come back to it. Well, we've been working our way through First uh, Samuel now, if you can believe it, since the beginning of February. And, uh, and I want to remind us again of sort of the method to our madness, because I think whether we're sort of new here, been coming the last couple of months or whether we've been here for a while, it is helpful for us to to understand a little bit of why we approach Scripture in general the way we do. Now, uh, keeping in mind that there's other points where we preach sort of topically through particular themes and there's other ways to approach preaching. Certainly, none of those are inherently wrong to uh, to approach it that way. But in general, we uh, we have I have as a, as a church body, as a pastor here, sought to, to teach through the scriptures piece by piece and in an expositional way. That just means we try to look at it and open our ears to hear what it says to us and try to avoid bringing to it what we want it to say. Because, you know, that was that little thing back in the Garden of Eden. If you remember that Adam and Eve had, you know, did God really say that's one of those key issues for us in, in knowing the Lord. And uh, and what this does for us is it means that it's a little bit more demanding for us, because not only going through a book like First Samuel, do we have some large chunks of scripture to to read through, but we kind of, you know, sometimes miss the opportunity to zero down on on all the specific details that we could. But ultimately, it, it, it is hopefully helping us and it helps us in these ways. I know I've said this before, but I'll remind us again, it it. Um, it protects you from me and me from you. Let's put it that way. What it does is it, it, it keeps, hopefully, myself or whoever's up here preaching from just sort of getting on a hobby horse or a pet topic that even if it's a good spiritual pet topic that that would just be week after week. And instead, it, it kind of forces us to deal with what we call the whole counsel of God's word to hear what he says, not just what what I up here maybe want to say or think is important, even if it's good stuff. And conversely, that should help you all. Help all of us, really, as we hear and receive God's word, that we can be that much more open to and say, "Okay, this is just the next thing that's coming along. And I can receive it not as an agenda or not something that's being pushed upon me, but as what God has for me to hear this week. So I hope that makes sense. Hopefully that strengthens us, helps us more to readily receive the word and walk in the word and believe the word. Uh, hopefully as well, not just grabbing little snippets of it here and there. But we we're coming to a place, you know, we've only got about six more messages in First Samuel. And, you know, over the course of the five or six years of our church, we've gone through different books of the Bible. And hopefully we have the encouraging sense that, OK, I, I know generally what's in the book of First Samuel. Now, I might not have been there every week, but I got a general picture of it. I know what's in that part of God's word. So that's our our mindset uh, even today as we continue on. And with that in mind, I am going to read chapter 24 and then I'll I'll take some liberties of summarizing the narrative part of chapter 26. And I think you'll see how these themes connect and really relate to these ideas, particularly of how our relationships, uh, especially the area of forgiveness, reconciliation, uh, true repentance, how those things can be informed by 
uh, the degree to which we recognize God's sovereign goodness. We're going to see that theme of God's sovereign goodness kind of woven through this again as we see how David interacts with uh, his enemy now, King Saul, in these two circumstances. So read along with me as I, uh, as I read aloud, starting in verse 1 of 1 Samuel chapter 24. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of Engedi. Then Saul took 3,000 men out of Israel and went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds, by the way, where there was a cave. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost part of the cave. And the men of David said to him, here's the day of which the Lord told you. Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David rose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David Hart struck him because he cut off the corner of Saul's robe. And he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord. The Lord's anointed to put my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Afterward, David also rose and went out of the cave and called after Saul. My Lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, Why do you listen to the words of men who say, Behold, David seeks your harm. Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. Some some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put my hand against the Lord, against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand, for by the fact that I cut Off the corner of your robe and did not kill you. You may know and see that there's no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. May the Lord judge between me and you that the Lord may the Lord avenge me against you. But my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness. But my hand shall not be against you. After whom is the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog? After a flea? May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you. And see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, Is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you've declared this day how you have dealt with dealt with me and that you did not kill me when the Lord had put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he not? Will he let him go safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of the father's my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. Then Saul went home and David and his men went up to the stronghold. Turn with me over to 
chapter 16, or scroll if you're on your device, down to verse 21 of chapter 26. I'm sorry, I think I just said 16, chapter 26 of 1 Samuel, verse 21. And let me just summarize what's taking place now. Uh, there's a little interim that we'll hear about next week. Uh, Saul, however, after this, these, you know, significant and seemingly sincere words at the end of chapter 24 in the verse beginning of chapter 26, the first few verses is on the search again to try to go kill David. So sort of short lived here in this instance, instead of uh, Saul wandering into David's territory, so to speak, David intentionally goes into Saul's territory, goes into the camp, sneaks in at night, putting himself at great risk. But not to kill Saul, but to get his spear and so forth, to show him that he'd been in a position to kill him once again, but had not done so. And they have an exchange that goes on throughout the last part of chapter 26. But just read with me verse 21, because I think Saul's response, again, is fascinating for trying to discern this whole issue of reconciliation, forgiveness and true and false repentance. Verse 21. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son, David, for I will no more do you harm, because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I've acted foolishly, and I've made a great mistake. David answered and said, Here's a spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, So may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. And Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Let's pray again. Oh, Father, we are thankful for your word today. ask that you would teach us uh, through it. And, Lord, that we might grow in understanding again this week for what it looks like to grasp your sovereign goodness. And then out of that, Lord, what it looks like for us to seek reconciliation, even when it puts us on the line. And also to be discerning and wise about uh, when there's really an open door, where there's really genuine repentance to bring about uh, reconciliation. And we pray that you would show us those things In your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, as we prayed earlier, I'm confident that uh, nearly every one of us is familiar with the events of this uh, last week in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, where Dylan Roof, 21-year-old white male, uh, sat in a Bible study at the predominantly black Emmanuel uh, church in South Carolina and then proceeded after spending, I guess, an hour or so with these loving folks to uh, gun down a number of them, uh, wounding several and killing nine age 26 to 87 ranging. There's a lot of things that probably we've thought about and prayed about and wrestled with. And the media certainly dishes us plenty of things to think about some good and some ill will certainly hear uh, stories and uh, thoughts about how to deal with hate, uh, knowing, of course, as we do, that ultimately Christ is that only hope for real heart transformation for any one of us. We may not hear much about that, uh, even in a media story about a, a church. Maybe we'll hear some of it. 
I don't know that we'll hear all that much about purposelessness and how uh, any of us really without purpose can live our life for useless things, even hateful things. And uh, where this uh, this man was in terms of his understanding of his purpose in in life and the beauty of our purpose in God to love and serve and bless. So I don't don't know if we'll hear all of that, but I'll tell you what is uh, striking and we've all probably seen it. I've heard some mention it this morning is the way that indeed the media and other outlets are covering something beautiful that's happening in the midst of this. And that's the uh, almost instantaneous. I think it was within hours or less than 24 hours that some of the family members directly impacted by these actions of Dylan Roof were able to extend words of forgiveness, even uh, acknowledge that they would be praying for him out of their Christian faith, out of the gospel working in their lives, out of the recognition of the mercy and the, the need that we all have for Christ to, to share that and communicate that. So it's an interesting time for us to think about a passage where, uh, where we see David putting himself on the line to seek a sort of rec- reconciliation with Saul. And as we think about our own life and our own relationships and the tension, the damage that's sometimes there between us and others, certainly, Lord willing, most of us would not have to face, hopefully have not and will not have to face anything like the families in that you know, Charleston church will, will uh, be facing and are facing. But we, we, we do face daily, uh, at least weekly, opportunities to seek to be reconciled with those who harm us. Sometimes it's the folks that are closest to us. Usually it's just verbal things, ways we say things or don't treat one another with the utmost love. Sometimes we can be pretty harsh and pretty difficult folks. We see that play out in our situations with co-workers and neighbors and extended family as well. And so it's interesting as we think about uh, these Charleston families and this idea of forgiveness and justice still for this man, Dylan Roof, and that the state will carry out and that we pray for. And then also uh, think about what it looks like to discern true repentance, to be reconciled. There's uh, there's a lot that's in these verses. There's a lot going on in our world today as well. So you might turn with me in your worship guide to that last page if you want to follow along with our sermon note section. And and it's just this theme again that you see David grasping at a level that I really can't even quite get my mind around. And I think some of these folks in the Charleston church probably grasping a way that I, I confess I, I can't get there myself. I don't uh, God's grace would be the only thing to be able to get me there. I'm impressed by it. I'm. I'm uh, stunned by it, and I wish I had more of it in my life. But, uh, but, but David is seeing that God is sovereign and good. And so it's interesting to, to note how he does two things that, that really we can begin to do in our lives as well. One is that he sacrificially seeks reconciliation. Hey, he doesn't just give it lip service and just say he's trying to do it. He actually puts himself in harm's way which kind of we're all doing anytime you are reconciled to somebody, you forgive something. You know, the biblical word for forgiveness and forgiveness and reconciliation are two different things. We'll talk about that. But the biblical word for forgiveness is like loosing, like untying your shoe, letting something loose. It's, it's releasing 
something. And we'll see that we're actually, when we do that, releasing ourselves ultimately from bitterness. But you're also releasing that other person. So you're it's sacrificial. You have to let go of a righteousness that you have over that other person that's offended you. That's what forgiveness is. But it's it's sacrificial in that way to show forgiveness and then to seek to be actually be reconciled. And then we're also going to see that David, though, we shouldn't be uh, simple minded about this, that David simultaneously is is very uh, careful. He's very wary of Saul's false repentance. Did you notice the last verse of each one of these chapters? Saul goes through this seemingly heartfelt tears running down his face, especially in the second part of, uh, of chapter 26, where he actually says, hey, I did wrong. I did something bad earlier. He's kind of praising David, says, don't harm my family, he kind of acknowledges that David's going to have the upper hand. He does all of this that seems to be some form of repentance on the part of Saul. And yet notice the last verse of each of those chapters. What does David do? He doesn't go back. He doesn't go back. He gives Saul his space. He heads on his way. And he says, God's going to deal with these things. And it's a reminder for us of a couple of things. The, the, the fact is that, that we struggle anywhere where our relationships have been damaged a little bit or a lot, maybe intentionally or unintentionally. And as I even say that, probably most of us can think of some specific situations in our mind. We don't even need help with those relationships in our life where there might need to be forgiveness or there might need to be reconciliation or where we might be showing some level of false repentance instead of real genuine repentance. This stuff is very applicable. But uh, as we look at these verses, then uh, most of us included, including myself, would probably not be able to reverence the will of God be able to trust the justice of God or care enough about reconciliation to take the steps that David does. We would want a quick solution to the issue. He seems to have a quick solution. Saul's right there. His guys with him are saying, do what we need to do. We've been on the run. We've been trying to get this guy. Here he is in our midst in this cave. We would want to not only seize things on our timetable, but we'd want to strike back when we've been struck. It's not like David doesn't have cause. He's had a spear fly at him, right? He knows what he's dealing with. It's a physical conflict, and it's serious. And the fact is that, uh, unlike David, it just highlights us that we, we really don't know how to love our enemies that, that well, right? To really seek that kind of reconciliation. So we learned something from David here. We'll take a look at that in a minute. But the flip side can be true as well. If uh, sometimes we want to steamroll, right, we want to fight back where we've been hit, uh, we can also lean to the other side. And that is to be a, a doormat, just to let things roll over us and, and not really to reckon with the evil that might be out there in the relationships we have with some people. To not really want to call it that and recognize it. Rather than seeking to live as Christians in a fallen world, sometimes as believers, we live in a sort of Christian dream world, right? Where the Apostle Paul says, as far as it's possible, live at peace with all men. And we sort of ignore the fact that sometimes it's just not possible. That's part of our broken world and our fallen world. 
So we have those tendencies. We either dismiss reconciliation or we come become abused, become uh, walked over by those around us and don't really know how to discern where there's been true repentance that actually would open the door to reconciliation. Does that make sense? So we struggle with these things in a lot of ways. And two questions for us then to look at as we look at David. And then ultimately, we're going to look at how Christ uh, magnificently fulfills so much of of this as well. One is, where are those uh, places in our lives, in your life and mine, where we need to be more diligent in extending an olive branch, in seeking reconciliation, in trying to reach out to those who maybe have hurt us in the past or hurt us just recently. Look back with me at chapter 24 for just a moment. I think you you get the picture of the narrative. You know, it's sort of humorous, of course, that Saul's going in there to, to go to the bathroom. But you can picture these folks all, you know, imagine the lights out in here and everybody hunkered down behind these curtains and up against the, you know, sort of wet walls of stone back in there. And right there is Saul. But look at how David is willing to put himself on the line to continue to try to seek reconciliation with somebody that most of us would have said, write him off. He's trying to kill you. Just if you don't want to kill him, fine. But don't try to. There's no reason for you to try to put yourself on the line to be reconciled with this guy. Just let it go. That would be my approach to it. Like, okay, I get your thing about not wanting to kill the Lord's anointed and let the Lord do that. I understand that, but don't do this. And imagine his men standing next to him. He doesn't just put, David just doesn't put himself on the line. Because at any time, they're in the cave. They're stuck back in here. If y'all want to come and get me, i got nowhere to go, right? Outside are Saul's forces. His men are stuck there with him. His men are loyal to him. They've been on the run. And now they're saying, hey, go for it. This is the opportunity. So he's got to lead them through this whole issue as well. He's not just potentially damaging himself. He's potentially losing his entire force of those who are supporting him. And then he goes even further. As I said, he's actually convicted, although the cutting of the robe we're going to see is really symbolic. But and, and it and is helpful for him to make his case with Saul. He's convicted because it would seem apparently even as he is sneaking behind and cutting off that little part of Saul's robe. That, you know, knife in hand, he's in his thought, in his thoughts, in his mind, thinking something more than just cutting off the rope. And he's convicted that he's even thinking about taking justice into his own hands in that way instead of trusting the Lord. Powerful, isn't it? Powerful understanding of God's sovereignty and God's goodness that, man, you know, you think at the level that David, and we know he's not a perfect guy, but here he is an exemplar of that. Uh, you think about what our how our relationships would be transformed or could be transformed if we would have that approach as well. I think you understand the speech and the interaction that these two guys have. I like what uh, C.S. Lewis uh, said. He said this about real restoration. And and we, we really need to grapple with this, probably with some of our relationships. He says real restoration means looking steadily at the sin the sin that is left over without any excuse after all allowances have been made and seeing it in its horror, in its dirt, its meanness and its malice, and nonetheless being wholly reconciled to the man who has done it. 
That stuff only happens through the gospel. That we can only get to that place of being ready through recognizing who God is, his sovereign goodness, and really being ready for him to work in that way in our relationships. So that would be the first application point for us today. Just think about where do we need to apply that in our lives? The second thing that I I think is equally interesting, because sometimes in the church, because of our emphasis on forgiveness, because of our emphasis on grace, we have a hard time of doing what what David seems to still be able to do, which is to discern where there is more than lip service going on, discern where there is actually a changed heart and a changed life. And, of course, as we know, that forgiveness is sort of a thing as believers. We're commanded, as I understand it, to extend to, you know, everybody. And it's really ultimately about us. It is. It's a bitterness killer. It allows us to release that other person and release ourselves from the bitterness to say, I entrust this to God's hands. That's different biblically from reconciliation. You know, you can forgive someone and never see him again. And there's probably some relationships in our lives where we've already taken that step or we may be thinking we need to take that step. You can forgive that person and follow God, I believe, and obey that way. It is a different thing, though, to be seeking reconciliation, to seek to restore that relationship. And in general, where the damage has not been so severe, that's something we ought to do. And in relationships that were locked together for life, husbands and wives, right? Or family members with extended family members or even co-workers working together for a, a period of time. We sort of have to, to try to figure out how to seek reconciliation. It's got to move beyond forgiveness, generally speaking. And so it's interesting to look a little bit at, uh, at the things that Saul says. And, and just notice, if we will, that, uh, that David has some discernment about it. Look at the end of chapter 26, uh, verse 21, where we read earlier. He says, hey, I've sinned. He calls uh, David his son. You know, he says, my my son. He seems to have these caring words for him. He avows that he's not going to do any more harm. Of course, he's vowed that before. So we've already seen that pattern. So some of the things you see here are uh, there's a difference between words when there's a character issue with somebody and their character has shown something else. Then the words need to be sifted out through the character. Right. In general, we want to take people at their word. But when there's been an issue of character, then we've got to discern the words versus the character. And David's learning how to do that. Uh, David also goes on and he says in verse 23, hey, the Lord rewards man for his righteousness and faithfulness. So, again, we see that he's trusting and trusting all of this to the Lord. I thought it was interesting. Uh, I found a statement from a guy named Thomas Buchanan. He wrote this uh, about a 1970s movie. I haven't I haven't seen it. I don't know anything about it, but maybe some of you all have. He says the he says this. He says the 1970s movie Love Story gave us that memorable quote. Love means never having to say you're sorry. He says of all the phrases that Hollywood has given us, this one ranks just below yabba dabba do as a as an intelligent contribution to American thought. He goes on. He says, love, of course, means always having to say you're sorry over and over again. If we care about someone, we immediately try to right the wrong we've committed. Right. That's producing fruit in keeping with repentance. Says, though, sometimes saying you are sorry isn't enough. 
more substantial forms of proof being required, it's always the first step. For this reason, every relationship requires times of humility and repentance. This is especially true for our relationship with God. Okay, so he's just reminding us that there is this pathway and and the pathway to reconciliation is true sorrow for sin. But then that sorrow for sin ought to produce something more. I like what uh, Oswald Chambers said about this. I think it helps connect connect the dots because Chambers points out that it is good to be sorry about our sin for its effect on our personal relationships with each other or for its effect on our fellowship with the Lord. But there's something else at work there. Listen to what he says. He says, we trample the blood of the son of God underfoot if we think we are forgiven because we're sorry for our sins. Right. You ever have that feeling? It's like if I can if I can be sorry enough with God, if I can really feel bad enough, it's sort of like a penance we bring along ourselves. Most of us probably don't believe in an official practice of penance, but it's like if I can feel bad about my sin enough. I think that's why some young people and others and, you know, self-destructive behaviors is I'll try to do something to myself to feel as bad as I can for the sin. I'm the sin effects that I'm feeling. He says he says this, he says, the only explanation actually is the forgiveness uh, for the forgiveness of God is the unfathomable depth of his forgetting. It's the death of Jesus Christ. The greatest note of triumph that ever sounded in the ears of a startled universe was that sound on the cross. It is finished. That was the last word in the redemption of man. Okay, so ultimately. We're seeking as believers rightly to discern where there's been significant damage, that there's fruit in keeping with repentance. But that fruit doesn't just come, you know, from the individual any more than our grace to them does. It comes through Christ. Christ is the one that allows us to say sorry and be sorry, not just because of the repercussions, but sorry because we have damaged and affected that relationship with God. It's through Christ and recognizing his justification, his righteousness for us, that then we can really say we're sorry in the truest sense, I guess would be the way to put it. So as we look at these uh, verses and come to a to a close, uh, let me share one story and then let's make a few comments about how really so much of this is beautifully fulfilled in the life and work of Christ as we think about these issues of reconciliation and forgiveness. I'm reminded of the story. I have probably shared it before in the past, but it's a a good one of the two friends that went on a journey together. It was a long journey and on the way and deciding their path and their direction. They eventually got into an argument with one another and the one friend uh, slapped the other one in the face. They got so heated in their argument. Person who had been slapped reached down into a little sand nearby where they were standing. And he wrote in the sand, my best friend slapped me in the face. They went on with their uh, journey and had some other obstacles to deal with, eventually came to this large river that they were trying to cross. And they both began to make their way through. And the, the one who had been slapped started to stumble and started to fall underneath the water and was in great peril. And, and his, his friend, they had been hiking with him and had slapped him earlier, grabbed him and pulled him out of the water and rescued him. He walked over then and wrote on the rock, etched in the rock with a stone. 
uh, these words. Today, my best friend saved my life. Well, his friend said, you know, I noticed earlier you wrote about what I did to you in the sand. And then later on, you wrote about what I did for you in the rock. And the friend put it this way. He said, when someone hurts us, we should write it down in sand where the winds of forgiveness can erase it away. And when someone does something good for us, we must engrave it in a stone where no wind can ever erase it. It's powerful to think about these uh, ways that a greater and greater trust in God's sovereign goodness can really transform our relationships in a church body like this, in our life groups and small groups where there's always probably going to be some damage and relationships affected. We just, most of us <laughs> start with me, open your mouth and, you know, there's some damage probably coming out pretty soon. But uh, in our marriage relationships, in our work relationships. But it's also a beautiful thing to see how some of this with David is fulfilled in Christ. Just a couple of things of note. The first is this, that there's a great contrast when you think about the extremes to which David goes to avoid touching, harming, doing anything, even thinking a negative thought about who? About the king of Israel, about the Lord's anointed And to think about all that was done to Christ, all that he absorbed, all the abuse that he took as the Lord's anointed highlights contrast for us that power of of really what Jesus endured. Not only that, but Jesus uh, fulfilled what David did in putting himself ultimately on the line for our salvation, for our rescue. David was willing to put himself at risk for reconciliation with Saul and to respect that kingship. Jesus putting himself at risk for our salvation. Jesus, like David, tempted to take the kingdom. Remember with the the evil one tempting him? Hey, take the kingdom in your hands. You've got the power. Go do your thing. And Jesus said, no, I'll do this on God's timing, not on my timing, just as uh, David did as well with Saul. And then lastly, that robe. That robe is an interesting thing, isn't it? Because that robe symbolized the kingship. And you remember there were a couple other robes later on in the story of the Bible. One put on Jesus in mockery of his kingship, which in fact was redeemed and shown to be a robe fitting for a king as he went to the cross. And then the robes we read about in the book of Revelation of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, wearing in his glory. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the beauty of your word and the things that it teaches us, even where it challenges us and especially where it challenges us. And we ask now that you would grant us a greater vision for who you are as our sovereign good God and that that would be transforming for our relationships that ultimately we would see in that a picture of who Christ is, of what he's done for us, that we might live out his work in us. Lord, through being incredibly willing to seek reconciliation and at the same time being remarkably discerning to understand where the other party is ready for that and ready with true repentance. We ask, Lord, that you would help us for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.